we made the decision to close our operations on the Saturday night, which was the 21st of March, before Boris Johnson told the country to shut down. Now, the cost of doing that for our business is massive. So to make that decision was huge, but it was absolutely the right thing to put our colleagues and customers' health and safety first and foremost. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Dash Gupta, CEO of Marshall Motors Group, the seventh largest motor dealer group in the UK. Dax shares with us the vision and purpose that have been instrumental in driving 10 times revenue growth over the last 14 years. He discusses the practical implications of having a strong moral compass, as well as the little things that make a big difference. He also talks about how they created transparency for their staff during COVID, and his own view of how one becomes a successful CEO. So, Dash, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Uh, Maybe just as a way to get going, you could uh, just tell us a little bit about both yourself, but also about Marshall Motor Group. Well, first of all, uh, uh, thank you for having me on the show, uh, Belden. It's a a great opportunity. A bit about myself. So I'm uh, uh, Dash Gupta. I'm the group CEO for Marshall Motor Holdings PLC. We are a large listed auto retailer. We have revenues around 2.5, 2.6 in a sort of normal year, whatever one of those is now. But just this morning, we've done a big profit upgrade announcement this morning, so that we'll make a profit of not less than 50 million. So just gives you a sort of sense of the business. We have 130 businesses. So yeah, that's us. What are the sort of range of activities that those 130 businesses are involved in? Yeah, so we've got principally franchise retailers. So of the hundred, it's 136 businesses. Of the 136, 116 are franchise retail businesses. And that's kind of the core business, really. We've got some trade parts operations. So we've got seven of those. We've got a number of body shops, et cetera. So that they're kind of ancillary to the core business. But the core business that most people will know us for and recognize us is the franchise business. So a lot of people see marshall.co.uk advertised all over places like the football, the premiership, the TV. We're on TV with the, the cricket, the darts, the football, rugby. And in terms of those 116 businesses, we basically partner with 17 of the 40 that operate in this country, global manufacturers. So, uh, but more significantly, our 17 cover uh, around about 80% of the UK market. So quite frankly, it's all the big mainstream manufacturers. So just to give you a flavor of that, we're the biggest partner in the UK for Volkswagen Group. So about half our group is with VW, which we're absolutely delighted to have. We're big with Audi. We're biggest in the UK for Skoda, Volvo. We're big with Mercedes-Benz, Jaguar Land Rover. And within each of those businesses, in their own right, they are individual business units with individual management teams and, you know, heads of business, we refer to them as. Those heads of businesses, you know, are very senior guys. You know, they would be typically running our, our average turnover per site is about 25 million. We've got some as big as, you know, heading towards 80, 90 million. Uh, and our smallest is about 11 or 12 million. But on average, it's about 25 uh, million is the average site. Um, they typically would employ 40 staff on site. So it just gives you a sense of what each of these businesses is doing. And clearly what they do is a range of activities, but principally uh, selling new cars, selling used cars, funding those vehicles for consumers, selling surveys, selling parts. So that's pretty much what we do as an organization. Mm, that's quite a range of activities there. 
Um, I wonder if you could tell us when you look at all that, you know, kind of what's the purpose of the organization and particularly how do you see any sort of broader, higher, whatever word you might want to use purpose to what you're doing? I took over CEO 14 years ago. The vision that, you know, I sort of had for the group back then was for Marshall to be the UK's premier automotive retail group. And back then we were quite small. We were about 300 million in sales, probably employing about three or 400 people. So much, much smaller business. And, you know, a lot of people say, what does uh, this word premier mean? And I said, for me, for me, it's very simply, we want to be the best retail group in, in our sector. And there are, you know, hundreds of groups that operate within our sector. But being the best is quite a subjective discussion because you know are you the best if you're the biggest well there's lots of examples in lots of other industries where you know being the biggest doesn't necessarily mean you're the best if you make too much profit profit's not a dirty word it's a good word because it enables you to invest and uh, employ people and retain staff and invest for the future but equally if you treat your customers and your employees really badly then you can't say you're the best so for me it's a range of things that we focus on we focus on delivering class leading returns for our shareholders uh, secondly what's important to us is customer satisfaction you know without customers enjoying the service that you provide they wouldn't come back again and that's not a sustainable business so thirdly is people without great engagement in an organization without great people the right culture in the organization without all of the good stuff that goes with that be that talent management succession planning recognition retention reward without great people you can't deliver great customer satisfaction and you can't deliver great performance so that is another key focus for us and we we measure that using an external agency called the great place to work institute we have been with them since 2000 it was in fact the, the first thing that i did was engage with those guys to get a sense of what the culture in the organization was like um, and actually we've been ranked a great place to work for 12 years in a row and in fact we've been ranked for seven years in a row in the best uk workplaces we've just had our results for this year and whilst we won't know if we're ranked again you know i'm pretty pleased with the results overall and i'm pretty confident we'll be ranked in the best uk workplaces for a, for an eighth year which is great so people is the kind of third pillar to underpin that vision fourthly you know we're in an industry that's changing quite significantly so people's attitude towards sustainability co2 emissions digital transparency so the whole host of things that is impacting our sector right now and within that technology and delivering retailing excellence is going to be critical to the business and its long-term success so retailing excellence and technology in particular and everything digital kind of sits within that box we again have a, our own in-house developed system which we've invested in for 14 years uh, called phoenix uh, and that's absolutely at the heart of what we do as an organization in terms of the way we run it and finally growth now growth is critical and, and i think it, it warrants having uh, its own sort of box that underpins that vision and, and that's because in a retail business retail businesses are traditionally very highly operationally geared and if you've got your costs continually going up which happens as a result of in inflation wage inflation uh, which is something clearly the whole of the uk is experiencing right now uh, because of the highly geared nature of your business you will basically end up starting having profit erosion and, and long term that will be a slippery slope or any business uh, so we're first and foremost we are obsessed with like for like growth i'm really proud that in the 13 out of the 14 years i've been ceo with the only exception being the pandemic year which hopefully shareholders will forgive me for we've delivered like for like growth even in market decline so i'm really really proud of that unfortunately we couldn't quite do it in the pandemic year but i'm sure people will forgive me for that one and within that growth as well it's about acquisitive growth we have been probably one of the most acquisitive groups in the sector so during my tenure here we've bought and sold 170 businesses uh, hasn't just been acquisitions we've also divested of uh, non-core and loss-making businesses, businesses that are not core to our strategy in the long term. So as a group, 
uh, you know, we're in pretty good shape. So that, that fundamentally is the purpose of the group. It's to be the UK's best retail group, but it's underpinned by class leading returns, customer satisfaction, focus on people, retailing excellence, which is all around technology and digitalization and growth organically and acquisitively. And I think the other kind of thing that sort of sits around that vision as well for me is what kind of company do we want to be? Uh, this is something we talk about uh, a lot at our board. We've got a really strong moral compass and I'm, I'm really proud of some of the things that we've done to demonstrate in the last year in particular. I would say in my career, some of the proudest things I've done. And I think it's around basically, as, as I said, it's the kind of company we want to be um, that people will look to and aspire and say, yeah, those guys are do the right things as well. And I think that's quite important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds like this is a very rich, well thought through purpose. It's got a number of different dimensions and elements. Is that something that sort of was in your mind when you took the job as CEO, you know, years ago, or was it something that you developed more recently? How did that all come about? No, I mean, to be honest with you, it, it sounds a bit lazy, this, but actually the vision has been exactly the same since I took over in 2008. And it sounds like I'm being really, really lazy that I haven't refreshed it. But every time I come back to it and I look at it and think, this just makes sense. And if it's not broken and it's not been broken for 14 years and look at the track record of the business and look at the growth of the business has gone under. I mean, the business has grown from 300 million in sales to, you know, we're heading towards 3 billion. Mm. So mm. Yeah, it's clearly working. We've improved the quality of our earnings, our profitability, our colleague engagement, our relationship with our business partners. You know, our shareholders are delighted. If it's not broken, why try and fix it? We're really good at executing 14 years and you can see there's no way you could have grown a business from 300 million to 3 billion or heading towards 3 billion and bought and sold 170 businesses if you weren't because, you know, lots of companies do acquisitions and, and fail because they can't execute. So I think that's one of the things we do really, really well. But I also think as well, you know, we've got a really strong board of non-execs. If they're really supportive, they will give really good ideas and challenge and make you think, yeah, okay, I never thought that's a good idea. Uh, and that's what you want from a great team of non-execs. So from my perspective, I really like you know some of the things that we're talking about in terms of moral compass of the organization. Hmm. Can you think of an instance you might be able to share with us where this issue around moral compass and what kind of company do we want to be has maybe been in tension with particularly maximizing profit? That's usually the one that people sort of seem to to feel is likely to be in conflict. Could you share an example on how you navigated through it? I can give you quite a few examples, actually. So the first one, if we start back at the pandemic, we made the decision to close our operations on the Saturday night, which was the 21st of March, before Boris Johnson told the country to shut down. Now, the cost of doing that for our business is massive. So to make that decision was huge, but it was absolutely the right thing to put our colleagues and customers' health and safety first and foremost. So the fact that we made that decision sort of 48 hours before Boris Johnson told us to, I can look myself in the mirror and say, we made the right decision, you know, so I'm really proud of that. What we also did is as a management team, we were having you know meetings pretty much every day through that period. It's quite intense. And we said, look, our people are going to be really anxious. They're going to be really nervous. Uh, and we said we would enhance their pay. We topped them up to 100%. Once we understood about the furlough scheme and actually people won't be spending money on travel and lunch, we did top up to 95% and 90%. So that cost us in the millions to do that, but it was the right thing for our colleagues. Um, so that was good. We also, through that whole pandemic, I recorded, the management team and I, we recorded about 60 videos 
that went out every week, sometimes two, three weeks as things were unfolding, because we were also conscious that our people, you know, were sat at home, worried about their jobs, worried about whether they're going to have a business to come back to. We were telling them what's going on in terms of the business. We were telling them about, you know, the financial position of the group. We were telling them, you know, what we were doing, what measures we were taking, how we were preserving cash. And I think people really appreciated that transparency. I think the other examples I'd say is we delivered, you know, really, really strong performance as a group coming out of the lockdown and our, our results were probably the best in the sector again. So we had our great place to work survey results come through. Literally, I've just been reading them last night. There must be something like 50, 60 comments specifically said the leadership shown from the management team through that period was second to none. We had our loyalty event on Saturday with uh, 320 people where we celebrate long service. And the, the partners of people who didn't work at Marshall were coming up to me and said, I recognize you from the videos. Can I just say we had more information from you than we did our existing employees? So that was good. But I think we also, when we came out, we had such a strong bounce in the second half. We delivered our full year numbers despite posting a north of 10 million pound loss in the first half, which was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I'm good. Okay. Yes, the market did bounce back with pent up demand, but also. I'm convinced you still have to take that opportunity, you know, and what we did is we massively outperformed the market. And I'm convinced it's because of the great quality engagement that we've got that, that drove that. On the back of that, we decided we felt it was the right thing to do two things. One, we wanted to say thank you to all of our colleagues. We therefore in June retrospectively paid a pay increase going back to, to May, so two months back, and that was a significant amount of money. We also, bear in mind our payroll is probably 130, 140 million with national insurance and pension costs. We also decided to pay back the government's furlough support from 2021 that we'd had and rates, and that was over £4 million. We were the first group in our sector to do that, uh, and we led the way. And we also gave all of our employees, directors excluded, thank you bonuses. So every employee bar the directors got a thank you bonus. Um, and um, yeah, again, I'm really proud. So that, that doing those things cost the company, you know, probably about five and a half to £6 million off this year's number, 2021 numbers. We didn't need to do that, but we, again, felt it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud we've done that. You know, I think the other final thing I would say is, as a management team, we told our remuneration committee we didn't want a bonus for 2020 because we felt it was taxpayers' money. So, you know, we're aware that others have taken bonuses, which I appreciate it's a personal view, it's a personal decision, but ultimately it comes back down to where's your moral compass and it comes back to that point, what kind of company do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of company where basically if you can afford to, you're not taking advantage of taxpayer money or government money? I'm incredibly proud that we've done that. And, and interestingly, one of the questions we asked in our colleague engagement survey was, were you proud that we did that? And 92% of our employees said, yeah, they were proud that we paid that money back. So again, demonstrates the sort of strong moral compass that we've got. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I often want to explore with my guests is what's the relationship between your purpose and your strategy? Our vision is clearly to be the UK's best retail group. It's not about being the biggest. It's, it's about being focused on those key areas. So that's the, the vision for the group. I think our purpose is to do that in a way, um, you know, that demonstrates the kind of company that we want to be and the kind of company that we are, because, um, you know, lots of companies can get big or make lots of profit, but it's also doing it in a way that actually you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, we did good. Uh, and some of them have cost me personally, uh, financially, you know, quite significantly, but I'm really proud. People ask me, how do you feel about that? Really, really proud. Um, so I think our purpose is about doing it in the right way. There is always that trade-off between profit and doing the right thing. In fact, I was being asked by a journalist this morning, well done you for paying the furlough money. He said, why did you do that? And I said, because 
we were the first company to do it. Somebody needed to do the right thing because there are lots of sectors. And I was at dinner last night in London and I was talking to the owner of the restaurant and he said, and that we know the hospitality industry has been hit severely. But last year, his financial performance, he posted a loss that was equal to the last five years profits. I mean, wow. And we all know lots of stories like that, you know, in the hospitality industry. It made me sort of think, gosh, how lucky we are in our sector that we've made exceptional profits because of market dynamics. And yes, we've massively outperformed the market as, you know, um, as we always do. So, you know, I always sort of say, you know, the profits that we're making in H2 last year and this year are, you know, probably 75, 80% driven by the market, but 20% driven by, you know, what we've done in terms of performance. But if you are a company that has suffered, as in hospitality, you're absolutely right to hang on to that furlough money. If you're a company that's benefited from the market dynamics as a result of the pandemic, does that feel right that you should hang on to taxpayers' money? I appreciate people have a strong view on that. My personal view is I think that that doesn't sit right with the kind of company we want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've talked about a number of things you're proud of, and I think it certainly seems rightly so. Is there anything that you sort of looking back on it, think not that you did something you weren't proud of, but more just you found it more difficult than you would have expected, than you would have hoped? Uh, I'm, I'm really, really blessed, Belden. I've got an amazing, amazing, amazing team around me. There's only six of us on the executive committee, including myself. There's five of us. We've got a great team. I think if the guys were here, they'd probably say, I don't run it as if I let the team run it. Yes, someone's got to make the ultimate decision. But, you know, nine times out of 10, making decisions is pretty obvious and you come to the right conclusion. Actually, we haven't really put a foot wrong throughout the pandemic at all. The one thing I would maybe done slightly differently is we came into 2021 saying we're not going to claim furlough at all. So we wanted to give everybody the opportunity to know where they stand. Because, you know, for a lot of people, you know, and I see the data, we've got, you know, 4,000 people in the business. You see how they're impacted in terms of their mental health, you know, people who live in flats and they don't have gardens. And, you know, it's for those people, it's been really tough or they live alone. So one of the things we felt was really important was to give people clarity of what was going to happen. Putting people on furlough is not a nice thing for people to go through. I'm sure there'll be some people thinking, oh, this is fantastic. I'm sat at home and I'm getting paid. You know, there's also a lot of people who putting them on furlough is not a nice thing. People need clarity on their purpose as well. But I think the conclusion we came to is health and safety, number one priority. And that's why we utilize the furlough scheme. And then I think as we reopened in April, having claimed, you know, over four million pounds worth of government support through that that period, um, you know, we bounced back, did phenomenally well in quarter, you know, in quarter two, in March in quarter two, hence the, the outstanding results that we posted at half year. And that's when we said, we've had this money. Our people have had this money. Our people have sat at home through quarter one, through lockdown, but we're going to pay it because it's the right thing to do. So say that's one I, I look back now and think I could have done that a bit different or, or made the decision a bit faster. Mm-hmm. Mm. Any suggestions or, you know, sort of tips for other leaders who are sort of wrestling with the issue of what kind of company do we want to be and, and how can we be the company we want to be given the pressures that they might be under? I'm sure lots of CEOs and boards want to genuinely do a lot of things for their business, for their customers, for their employees. But maybe they don't have the fortunate position that we have in terms of, you know, we're debt free. We have, you know, the half year we uh, we said we had 60 million of net cash. So we're in a great position. So no pension deficit, no nasty leases. You know, we're in a really strong net cash position. So we can afford to maybe make those decisions to go and do a backdated pay increase, to go and do 
pay everybody a thank you and loyalty bonus to go and send to every employee a big hamper of chocolates, you know, which, um, you know, when you've got 4,000 people, you can do the math. So we can afford to do those right things. And I'm sure lots of CEOs and companies would like to do more of that. And I think the kind of culture you drive is around the little things that make a difference. One of the things I learned from one of my mentors many, many years ago, and I was very fortunate. I've worked with some amazing, amazing, amazing people over the years, and I always learned something from them. And he said, recognize the level that you're at and the impact you can make on somebody. And it's always kind of stuck with me, that line. And when I'm sort of mentoring and talking to people coming up through the ranks in management positions, I say exactly the same thing. If you come in in a bad mood, your people see that. But little things make a difference. If I give you a couple of examples, I write to all of our people or I email all my people who are have their anniversary. Now, okay, slightly admit it's slightly done electronically for me, but it comes from my inbox and people do reply and we do get into an email conversation. If I can't spare five or 10 minutes a day to focus on my culture, then I shouldn't be a CEO. You know, we sent a bottle of champagne and certificates to people. That wasn't a significant cost. So companies can do that. And what, what sort of really struck me on Saturday is a lot of people, particularly people who didn't work for us because they were partners of our, our colleagues, came along and said, I've worked for my company for 35 years. I've never so much had a, an email, a thank you, let alone anything like this from my company. Little things like that cost not a lot, and you can do that, but it's good leadership. I went to our Audi business in Newbury, and uh, when, when I do go on site, I like, get them all together. Nice to see you. How are you? You know, usual sort of thing. Tell them how the company's doing, and if they've got any questions, they can ask that to me. And this one apprentice who's 16 or 17 years old said to me, I've got a question. How do I get to be a, be a CEO? And I said, well, you know what? It's actually, um, I would say 90% of it is in your head and in your heart. And I said, you know, I work incredibly, incredibly, incredibly long hours. I do not think I'm a very clever person. I, I've got, I would say most of my team, I would say are way cleverer than me, but you can learn the 10%. So I said, if you want to be successful and you want to be a CEO, 90% you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, are you prepared to do what it takes? Are you prepared to put the hours in? Are you prepared to go the extra mile? A lot of people aren't, you know, they want to be successful. They want to have promotions, but they're not prepared to put the work in. Okay. Because you will get noticed. And uh, he said, how do I learn the 10% that's pieces? Well, that's about reading and asking questions and being curious. I got home and in my office, uh, which is where I'm now, I have lots of books. One of the books is how to be a CEO. So I wrote to this apprentice and I sent it to his home address, which I got from our HR team. Uh, great to see you at Newbury Audi. Great question. Remember what I said. This, this might help you with the 10 cent. P.S. I'm probably going to retire in 2025. You better get your skates on. And again, you know, a little thing like that. And actually, he has told a load of people about that. And again, that wasn't the reason why I did it. A small thing like that has such a big impact on an individual. That's happened to me over the years and you learn from it, you know? Mm hmm. What's the impact of all this been on you personally? How have you changed through this journey? What have you learned that you didn't maybe know at the beginning? What's it meant to you? I've learned so much. You know, I think one of the things I would say is, you know, um, I mean, I'm one of the longest serving CEOs in our sector. I was 36 years old when I was CEO for the group. Nobody sends you to CEO school. So you have to learn a lot of this and you have to be prepared to ask questions. There are no stupid questions in my view, you know, and don't be scared to ask. There gets a point, and I would say for me, I probably learned this in the last five or six years in particular. As our groups got bigger and bigger and bigger, you realize you can't do everything yourself. You have to basically uh, 
bring great people around you. And, you know, I'm really blessed. I've got great people around me. Uh, it takes time. You have to trust people to do that. Now, equally, you've got to have the balance between trust and governance. Otherwise, you know, that's when things go wrong. The biggest thing I probably learned through my career is you can't do everything and you have to surround yourself with great people. I think if the business is smaller, you can do a lot of things. But as the group gets bigger and bigger, it's just been harder. And I think that's where, you know, surrounding yourself with great people makes a really big difference. Whenever I step down, you know, whenever that is, I want to be able to look back and say, I've left that business in a fantastically strong position and it is not reliant on me. And that's something that I think is really, really important because your legacy has to be that the business just doesn't do really well because you're there and you're driving it. It has to continue when you're not there. And as somebody who's, you know, quite, and my whole team are personally invested in the company as well and are all shareholders in the company. That's really, really, really important to me because we want the company to continue to do well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm question it might be difficult to answer but whenever that day comes you, you you want to be able to look back and i'm sure you will do you have any idea what you might want to be looking forward to for yourself at that point there's a lot of things i want to do i'm currently i'm involved in quite a number of other things in my spare time which god knows how i do but i do i'm patron of the automotive 30 percent club which promotes diversity and inclusion in the industry so this topic has really come up in the last two or three years and got momentum we actually started this seven or eight years ago because we recognized it was the right thing to do we recognized better customer satisfaction was coming from uh, a better diverse organization so for us we started that journey seven or eight years ago so another reason why we're in a good position on this particular topic and lots of companies are playing catch-up I'm also vice chairman for our industry charity, Ben. I've raised lots and lots of money for, for the charity. And again, if you're in a position where you can influence things and you can basically give back, then you should do that. So I'd like to do charity work, maybe do some non-exec stuff. One thing that gives me a buzz now is actually more seeing your teams do it. You know, the group has just picked up, you know, a string of awards. And in the last month, we've won, you know, six major awards in our sector, plus three highly commended. And it's a bit embarrassing because there was like lots and lots of people there and there were 17 awards and we were like, you know, we won nine nine awards, including best company, best group in the UK. You know, we're up against hundreds of companies. And whilst I picked up business leader of the year, actually, the first thing I said is, look, this isn't for me. This is for our people, because ultimately it's the work that they do that enables me to to get the benefit of all of this. Watching some of my guys come up the ranks, you know, there's there's so many in our group now. And that gives me such a buzz. You know, the youngsters coming through and you see them, then they stand out. That gives you a real buzz. When you see guys that you stretch them and you put them into bigger jobs, mentoring them, giving them advice, you know, giving them my experience, just as I've had the benefit of others in my past and in my career, that's really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's maybe a, a great note to end on. Let me again say thank you for joining us. Really very insightful to hear how you're thinking about this and how you've been able to drive what's been clearly a fantastic success. So thank you again for joining us. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.